everyone, and welcome to the Tidewad Tech, episode 59, David Thornburg, for August 11th, 2011. Uh, this week we're going to talk with uh, world-renowned uh, futurist and open-source advocate and uh, just general smart guy, uh, Mr. David Thornburg. Hopefully, uh, as of the time that we started <laughs> recording this, uh, Dr. Thornburg is MIA, and it, I'm, I'm sure it's our fault. Uh, I'm not going to blame that on him, but uh, in the process of scheduling, we probably put the wrong time zone in there or something, so we're going to start this and hope he shows up. If not, this may be the shortest episode we've ever done. Well, at least if you're listening live, right? Like it, after it's all edited, and you know, we eventually catch up with him and get his part done, then it'll uh, it'll all sound like the world is just perfect, and we'll probably edit this part out. Nah, I'll leave it. <laughs> I'll leave it. I, I got to say though, I'm excited. Uh, the more I've uh, done homework on him in preparation for the show, the more excited I am to talk to this guy because uh, I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of him before, uh, but. Anytime you put futurist in front of somebody and, and he's, you know, at least, I mean, he gets speaking engagements right. based off of that, right? So, I mean, he's a decent futurist, right? Uh, that always gets my juices flowing. I'm, I'm interested to talk to people like that. I first saw uh, Dr. Thornburg at a uh, Texas Computer Educator Association uh, convention. He uh, did a thing there. I saw him later at the International Society for Technology and Education, ISTE, uh, thing there. So I've seen him speak a couple times, met him personally a couple of times. Uh, he's one of those very quiet, um, unassuming guys that uh, belies um, uh, a superior intelligence Right. Uh, behind his his uh, quiet uh, confidence. So anyway, I really hope we get to talk to. Him. We'll definitely talk to him if not this episode, uh, another un- one. Unlike us, that's what I was going to say. Unlike yeah. us, we're loud and not smart. <laughs> right. that, yeah, he's quiet and smart. We're loud and dumb. Right. Is that how that goes? Yeah. Well, that's what you know. I mean, we have our own show. <laughs> <laughs> he has his own um, think tank. Uh, right. Yeah. I think yeah. he wins. Yeah, I think he does. <laughs> I guarantee he makes more per, for a, an appearance than either you or I do. Well, we're working on that. Yeah. Our, 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 you know, our plan for world domination is is still a little seedling. So <laughs> the same thing we do every night, Pinky. We're going to take over the world. <laughs> well, uh, I, I want I want to jump right into the warm up because uh, your very first topic uh, in the warm up we haven't talked about it pre-show which sometimes we do uh but i purposefully left that alone today <laughs> so i could hear it fresh so uh, I, why don't you cut into that i titled this uh first uh section uh, grizzlies versus dinosaurs or also I, I wrote a blog post about it for the for the two or three of you out there who read my blog uh called reality is boring uh and uh this week uh this last week i took my family on vacation and we uh took a we live near dallas and we decided to uh take a uh, an inexpensive vacation those two words don't go together it wasn't inexpensive. No, it no. was a less expensive vacation than going to uh, some destination. So we, we thought, you know, we live in Dallas. People literally come from all over the world to Dallas. So why don't we just do what they would do? Let's pretend we're from out of town. Sure. So we went to some of the local sites, and uh, we went to uh, the Grapevine Mills Mall, which is, uh, I think, the second largest mall in North America. Uh, it's big. It's a big mall yeah. um, uh, in, in Grapevine, Texas. We went there. Um Saw a tenth of it, but one of the things that we did there was we went to the Rainforest Cafe. And if you've never been to the Rainforest Cafe, let me give you a, a really quick uh, synopsis of it. Uh, mediocre, overpriced food in a really cool environment. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty accurate. So you walk in, and it's a it's a recreation, creative license taken of the of the African uh, Amazon rainforest. So you go in there, and there are uh, animatronic gorillas and alligator. I mean, before you even walk in, there's this giant, uh, like nine foot alligator who who snaps at you and 
stuff. And these, you know, animatronic animals, they're, they're, they're clearly fake. Um, but, um, they, they do the job well enough. And, uh, there's, uh, gorillas and there's elephants and there's pythons and, they all wake up periodically and make noise and move. And there's a, 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 a simulated rainstorm every now and then. There's even rain that falls in part of the restaurant. Um, cool. uh, it's, it's pretty cool. And so uh, we we did that uh, one day, and then um, a couple of days later, uh, no, uh, yeah, a couple of days later, we went to uh, the fair park in Dallas, where the uh, state fair uh, of Texas is, uh, and they have two museums there. They're, they're sister museums: the the Museum of uh, Science and the Museum of Natural History. It used to be called the Science Place, but they changed the name of it. Um, and so we went to the the Museum of Science first. And, uh, they have all sorts of hands-on exhibits there and, and they change out periodically, but they, they almost always have something about dinosaurs. And this time they had a, uh, uh called a Chinosaurus exhibit. It was, uh, it's a traveling exhibit. Uh, so if, if it comes to your area, I recommend you go see it. I think it cost us five bucks and it was well worth it. Um, the, and it's, uh, dinosaurs and, and, uh, information about dinosaurs found in what we now call China. Um, uh, interestingly, I said that to my wife. I said, what we call China today. And she said, what did they call it back then? And I said, no! <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, um, they have all your these- wife's the school teacher. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have all these. Uh, well, that's what they would have called it. They they didn't have language. Um, they have these uh, fully assembled bones and and recreated bones of these giant, you know, twenty foot, 50, uh, forty foot uh, dinosaurs. They have a pterodactyl in there. That or, or excuse me, I think they call them pterosaurs now. They've changed the name. Okay. Um, that are, that's uh, got a wingspan of like forty feet. It was massive. Uh, um, there's a little area where you can be a paleontologist. They, they've got stuff buried in dirt. You take your brush and your pick and you actually <laughs> dig it up. Uh, but also along with that, they have animatronic dinosaurs that, that breathe and blink and growl and roar and, uh, and you can get right up to them and, um, they won't let you touch them, but you can get really close. But a lot of the other exhibits in the, the science museum, you can touch. Um, so we stayed there for most of the morning and then we went across the way to the, uh, uh, museum of, of, of natural history. And there they have, um, upstairs they have a Lego room. It's a, it's again a touring display. But one of the, the big things there was they had probably half a million Legos dumped out in these tables with benches all around them. And you were just nice. encouraged to play with them as long as you want. And so, you know, we sat down and I built, built uh, stuff with my kids and we just had a good time there. And then we went across the way to another room that had, uh, it was a light exhibit. It was about uh, optical illusions and, and how, uh, light works. And you could, you know, there was, uh, different mirrors and, and, uh, uh, had one of those, phosphorescent walls where you can stand up against it and a flash would would make an image and you walk away and you see your image you okay see those things yeah, sure really cool stuff and so we did that uh and then we went down to the classic uh exhibits what you think of when you think natural history uh stuffed animals that were once living behind glass right staged looking all right like we went down yeah. there and my kids were immediately bored <laughs> um, and I, and I told my kids, and I, I was reading the little plaque. This, uh, that wing of the, the museum was opened in 1936. So you got to imagine in 1936, seeing a nine foot grizzly bear standing on his, on, on his hind legs was a, a pretty big deal. Sure. But compared to the 60 foot growling, roaring dinosaur that we had just seen, it was a snooze fest. Yeah. Um, and and I even I even quipped uh, to my family, and I, I put it on Twitter if you follow me there that these were probably a lot more impressive before you could go down to Bass Pro Shop and see the same stuff, because uh, they've got these same sorts of right. exhibits at Bass Pro Shops, and and so it it 
I'm not going to draw a heavy-handed analogy here, but the idea is that um, as technology advances, as our kids get uh, more sophisticated in what they appreciate, we have to uh, change what we call education. That wing of the museum is no longer educational. It's now just boring. Well, and, I, you know, it's funny you say that because that is exactly, I think, the argument that uh, people would make for iPads in the classroom. And I, it's not an argument that I would necessarily uh, disagree with. Now, I might disagree with districts spending money on iPads when they could spend that money better. Right. But uh, but it does get to that point. I mean, it, it's it's all about the engagement, right? And the more engaged the kids are, then, you know, theoretically at least, the more that they're going to learn, right? Yeah, so I, you know, I have to ask if you're in a classroom or if you're a manager of classrooms or whatever, which does your classroom represent? Is it the Legos and the uh, archaeology exhibit with brushes and, and sand where you get dirty and do stuff? Or is it once dead things behind glass? <laughs> yeah. Which of those is your class? Which one do you want it to be? And uh, answer that question first, and then answer which one is it really? Um, cause if we're going to teach my children, right, my children are, uh, uh, almost nine, just turned seven and about to be three. All right. So that's the ages they are. Um, and they are bored with the classic museum and we go a couple of more times. They'll be bored with the animatronic dinosaurs. Yeah. So if you're going to get their attention and keep their attention, you've got to do it in dramatic ways. And, and you could say that the information presented, uh, in the the classical exhibit that uh, Hall of Mammals there uh, was still good information, right? Two plus two is still four. That's still good information that we can still learn about those habitats. But if the kids won't even spend five minutes in there looking, you will never teach them anything. And so if your kids are bored five minutes into your class, it doesn't matter how good the content is, you'll never get them to learn anything. Well, that's where I feel sorry for, you know, there's a lot of teachers out there that really don't, you know, they don't have control over that situation. Uh, they're, they're in a district where maybe the district doesn't really embrace technology. So, uh, you know, a brand new teacher can come into a classroom. Let's say a brand new teacher out of college that is all idealistic and has all these grand plans of what they're going to do. And they're presented with a classroom where the tools that they have are the same old, you know, tools that teachers have always been using. So I, I feel for those teachers, uh, you know, there are teachers out there that have all all kinds of access to technology and don't use it. But I feel for the teachers who are, are are idealistic. They get the idea of what we're talking about and don't have that opportunity as much. Or don't have the freedom. You know, if they right. try something innovative, they get slapped down for it. Right. Uh, we, we certainly see that. Um, I, I read a, an article uh, recently uh, that you've probably all read, too. It was in, the, I think, the Washington Post called The Myth of the Exceptional Teacher. And this teacher was saying that uh, the idea is that if your teacher is exceptional, if you're, uh, if you're a really good teacher, it doesn't matter if you have 20 kids in the classroom or 40 kids in the classroom, you'll be really good at it. And this teacher is saying, you know, I can't teach this ADD kid, this exceptional kid, this kid who's homeless, and this kid who's drugged out on Ritalin all the same way. I can't do it. It doesn't matter how exceptional you are. So that's sort of the flip side of that argument. We've got to create the environment, right? The um, the fancy exhibits wouldn't do any good without the support system of the museum around them, without all the other exhibits side by side, and without the infrastructure that makes that work. Uh, so it, you, you got to go both ways. You've got to be innovative in the classroom, but you've got to support that in your administrative uh, back end at the same time. That's very deep. 
Is it? Yeah. Sorry. I'll try not to let that happen again. <laughs> I didn't know we were going there. That's pretty good, though. Yeah. Uh, and one other thing I wanted to mention that's just sort of a throwaway is I, 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 uh, I had worlds colliding. Any of you who were uh, Seinfeld fans were, will recognize that, uh, that phrase, worlds are colliding. Uh, and and uh, today I installed for the first time a Drobo uh, at school. If you've if not, not heard of it, D-R-O-B-O dot com. It's a... Uh, um, Basically, it's a really high-end um, RAID uh, storage system, uh, and we were we had we had a need for a new backup system, a bigger backup system. We had we had outstripped our storage capacity, uh, so I started looking at options and. And this was not the most expensive option, but when you compare what it can do with what other options are, um, it was really not a lot more expensive than even if I had gone with a, a free, like, free NAS sort of thing. Uh, it, it wasn't, it didn't cost that much. Uh, and so I, I bought this Drobo and I was trying to hook it up uh, via an iSCSI connection. I'm getting geeky on you, you teachers out there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> But an iSCSI connection is essentially um, a way to hook up hard drives and things like that over a network and make them think that they're local. Um, and so it was. Uh, I was running it on an Ubuntu uh, Linux server, so free software, really expensive hardware. It was sort of a uh, an odd moment. But not only that, but as I was telling Sean, it was a virtual machine of Ubuntu running on a physical uh, CentOS box. Uh, and then I had a virtual hard drive built across the RAID of the Drobo being connected by a virtual SCSI connection across <laughs> a LAN. So it was like three things that don't exist all talking to each other. It was like unicorn sauce and, and magic fairies. We need to have like a special sound, like a, a special siren. Whoop, whoop. Like extra geek content, extra geek content. <laughs> Warning, geek content ahead. Warning. Right. That was, that was pretty deep. But the funny thing is, I mean, there's a number of our listeners are going to be like, Oh, wow. That's cool. You know? Yeah. Uh, Sean says I get, um, excited about the mundane things. Like I, I will make some comment like, can you believe I'm doing this? And he'll say, yeah, it's called a cell phone. It's been around for 10 years. Yeah, it, you know, it's kind of funny because we're the same age, right? right. And, and you're, you're still like, you're that old guy who is amazed when you talk about like a terabyte hard drive, right? right. Like, man, I, you know, you just would, your head would have exploded 10 years right. ago to think. And I'm like the, even though we're the same age, I'm the young, the young kid that's just like, well, yeah. What what's so big about that? You know? <laughs> See, I've been around long enough and in this industry long enough. I'm still amazed when things work. You know, right, I'm not right. I'm not stumbled when they don't work. I'm amazed when they do work. When I turn a computer on and it boots up, I go, "Wow!" Because that was a big deal. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just a you know a quick aside from my quick aside. Uh, in um, in college, I had an old '67 uh, Chevy pickup truck that died on me more often than it than it worked i got got rid of it walked on foot for a while had a bicycle for a while and then got an old like 74 i think model van with there was a green van with two blue doors that was a piece of crap um and i drove <laughs> the that old, like chester molester right, van. <laughs> drove that until literally it fell apart so people who had known me all these years just kind of knew that mark was the guy who either had a crappy vehicle or no vehicle um and then just toward the end as i had gotten a good job and stuff i bought a new car uh, well new to me it was like five years old but it was it was like 
like the newest thing I'd ever had by a couple of decades. Um, and one day, one of my friends at work said, it must be pretty nice to put your key in the ignition and know it's going to start. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, I mean, there's uh, most of us probably out there have been at that stage at some point, right? When you had to, when you had to either when you were 16 or like you said, when you were in college or something, but you had that, that just crappy vehicle that you stuck the key in there and you're just like, please, please start, please, please. Yeah. And you're rubbing the dashboard. Come on, <laughs> right. baby, come on. And so I'm still have that mindset sometimes with technology. I remember back in the days when, uh, you had to insert your DOS 3.1 floppy, uh, through five and a quarter inch floppy at that and boot it up and then get that running up into the high memory and, and, and then move <laughs> things off so you could free up your 640k of low memory. So I remember that. So it, it's still that kind of moment for me. Every time I turn it on, it's like, it's amazing to turn the key and know it's going to start <laughs> all right and so without further ado uh we will bring on uh dr thornberg yeah hopefully let's not, let's not keep him waiting yes <laughs> and my hope is that by the time we air this there will actually be an interview here tell us a little bit about who is david thornberg and what does he do well i think my um <laughs> who am i I started out my career uh, back after getting my Ph.D. from the University of Illinois in 1971. I spent 10 years at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, and that was the think tank that generated uh, everything from the Ethernet to the laser printer and um, really developed the graphical user interface. A lot of things we take for granted today sort of emerged during the first decade of that center's uh, existence. And I was very proud to be part of that original team. So I remember a quote something like uh, 50 of the top 10 smartest people of the world worked at Xerox Park. Well, <laughs> I would certainly agree that 50 people who thought they were the smartest people in the world, <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not sure that they really were. But, you know, we, we certainly, I mean, to me, the beauty of it was that we got paid to answer questions that we ourselves asked. And we chose to ask really challenging questions. And they involved the idea just to, you know, for the Wayback Machine, people who don't, you know, who are too young to remember anything about the old world. <clears throat> Computing in the old and olden days was a mainframe uh, system that you walked around with a bunch of punch cards and gave to somebody to run your software. <clears throat> or if you were using a terminal that was using paper tape and just uh, doing time sharing on a mainframe computer. The notion of a personal computer was a brand new idea. <clears throat> and as that evolved at the Xerox Research Center, uh, we built our own. That was called the Alto. And, uh, it was a quite a power, quite a powerful machine. And what made it powerful was not just what it was technically capable of, but that it changed the relationship of people and machines and set up the idea that human beings could actually be in control of their computational destiny not to be at the mercy of some um, of the higher priesthood that operated the mainframe systems of the past. And it was really uh, it was really an exciting place to be, and wonderful stuff happened. And into my tenure there, uh, I had a son and became quickly interested in education as a result of that. And as I was finishing up my, uh, my 10 years at Xerox, I realized that I wanted to focus more on educational technology. If the personal computers were going to make it big, then I knew that they could have an impact on education. 
and that was, you know, really what pulled me pulled me into that field. Uh, and at that time, the first personal computer that I bought uh, was the uh, Commodore Cat, which had a cassette player for storing the programs. And then uh, Apple came out with the Apple II. The original Apple II did not have a hard drive. It also used cassette tapes, although hard drive came out pretty quickly for that. And by the time I left Xerox, I'd gone over to Atari to do some consulting for them, and I also did some consulting for Apple. And then in 1984, uh, we saw the Macintosh come out with which was the first commercial implementation of a lot of the ideas that had really been given birth to at, uh, at Xerox Research Center. And a lot of that happened because Steve Jobs was very aggressive in coming in and hiring uh, some of the people from the labs to go work for him, and they brought a lot of their viewpoints about technology with them. So the modern graphical user interface that we see today is, by and large, not that different from the one that we that I had on my desktop in 1973, uh, and that makes it you know, something that's kind of interesting to think about from time to time. Um, Just out of curiosity, do you see that as a good thing or a bad thing that the uh, GUI hasn't changed in 40 years? I see it as a bad thing because uh, we're seeing, you know, we're not seeing the research that that I think needs to be done. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, when Xerox was developing the Alto computer. And from that as a springboard to developing a computer for the marketplace, they only had 500 customers in mind. And those were the Fortune 500 companies. And so as we experimented with different types of interfaces, the decision was made to focus on something that looked like a business desktop, using the metaphor of folders, using uh, metaphors for documents, uh, things of that sort, so that it would be familiar to a business person. The problem with that is that it put the focus on the nouns of computing, on the artifacts, rather than on the processes. So all of the all of the verbs, all of the adjectives, all of that stuff was was put up into drop down menus, and you see that today with you know menu things like uh, save, edit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We have all these different you know menu bars on our on our machines. And we still have a very document-centric world. The reason I think that that may be a mistake in education is that kids are very verb-centric, not noun-centric. And so something that functions more around the basis of the activities than around the products of those activities might make more sense. Fortunately, for the entire field, uh, that view was shared by some other folks who at the MIT Media Lab developed the sugar uh, uh, user interface, which sits on top of, of Linux initially, <clears throat> and that sugar interface was more verb-centric than noun-centric, and very clearly designed with children in mind. And the sugar OS was written uh, specifically for the one laptop per child project, right? It initially, was, it initially was created for the one laptop per child project, but since that time, the sugar project has been spun off separately from, OL, from OLPC. And so you can get sugar for an exact, if you have Ubuntu on your machine and you want to use a sugar interface, you can download that. Uh, you can, you can put the sugar user interface on a variety of machines. It's not restricted to OLPC. 
And the reason for that is because uh, Becker pulled aside from Negroponte, and, and they now have two groups working, one on the hardware side and another one on the software side. All right. So tell us, that's who uh, David Thornburg was. Tell us who David Thornburg is today. What are What is it that you're working on today as part of your Thornburg Center? I think there are several things that are really big on my plate right now. And the biggest one is sort of an umbrella for everything else. And that is the power of inquiry-driven project-based learning. How we move away from classrooms as places where kids get information to places where they get to work on, on interesting questions and and interesting projects that uh, in many, if not all cases, are highly interdisciplinary, uh, much more like the sorts of things that we all encounter when we're not in school. And there are several ways that we're approaching this. Uh, one of them is that we decided to design a classroom for which lectures were impossible. And we call it the educational holodeck. And basically, it's, a, it's an empty white room with some furniture in it until you turn on the computers. When you turn on the computers using multiple projectors in the room, that room can become a spaceship, it can become a time machine, it can become whatever you want it to become. <clears throat> and the students in that room go on missions. Uh, for example, we have a mission to Mars where the students uh, fly to Mars to try to figure out whether or not Mars had or still has uh, any microorganisms on it. And in the process of doing that, uh, <clears throat> We're using Celestia, for example, as the, as our uh, visualization tool. They're looking out the front viewport of a spaceship that is six meters across and one and a half meters high. It's quite quite impressive when you're in the room. It's immersive and, and interactive. And everyone in that room has a role to play as part of the mission. It could be they're all on teams. It could be a medical team, uh, uh, a life sciences team, a geology team. Uh, engineering, whatever, different disciplines, and the students do research uh, online, typically, to flesh out the kinds of skills or pieces of information they need in the context of their group, and then during the course of, of the journey, there's a couple of disasters that might hit the ship that they have to handle to make sure that the mission doesn't get aborted and whatnot. So lots of dynamic problem solving going on. It's a highly interactive environment. Uh, lots of kids working in teams. And the teacher's role in that environment is to be a facilitator of the process, not somebody who's going to stop and give a lecture. In fact, a typical mission only has a five minutes of didactic presentation. And we put that in a startup video that everybody sees that basically sets the context for the mission. And after that, there's no more talking. Uh, in a directed sense, it's all uh, it's all actively working working on the project. So that's one of that's one of our tasks, and we built the first one of those at a school in the city of Brazil um, two years ago. We started it. It'll be no, actually a year ago. It'll have its first anniversary this this October. It seems like years ago. And there are several schools in the U.S. that are um, getting ready to. You know, implement it themselves. And the challenging part in putting a program like that together is not the mission de design and development. It's the staff development, helping, helping teachers understand that their role is very different from their role in the traditional classroom. <clears throat> um, second thing that we're doing that um, actually ties into this a lot is taking a look at the whole mobile revolution. The, the smartphones, the tablets, all of this stuff 
where kids are walking into classrooms with access to the Library of Congress in their pockets. And how do, how do we redesign the educational practice to take advantage of these tools? Because banning them just simply doesn't work. And we wouldn't, we shouldn't want to ban them anyway, because quite frankly, they're just so amazingly powerful and can be used for lots of good things. And I was just doing a presentation last week, in fact, in which after talking about the mobile revolution, one of the, one of the people in the room said, yeah, but kids are using the internet to cheat. And I said, maybe the problem is asking questions for which Google is the answer. Or maybe it's a definition of cheating uh, needs to change. The idea well, that, uh, exactly. that you have to generate all the answers from your own memory is probably uh, a dying concept, uh, or, or well, maybe should be a dying concept. I think it should be a dying concept because, to start with, I'm, uh, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example in my life. I do this all the time. <clears throat> my wife and I are driving down the road. Uh, there's a question that comes up, uh, you know, where's the closest hobby lobby? or something like that, I have no idea, right? So I just, without thinking about it, pull out my smartphone, go into Google uh, with a voice activation, and just say, where's the closest uh, uh, Hobby Lobby to whatever city we're in? And typically, it's the first or second hit. Um, and then once I click on it, and I get the address, from there, I can go into the mapping tool and have it generate the step-by-step -step direction. And so I've spoken one sentence and maybe clicked four or five times on the screen and solved, solved the problem. So it's become an extrasomatic memory. It's become a memory that's outside my body. And as much as I would hate losing a cell phone, I would really hate losing a smartphone because I've found out personally how to use that as a very dynamic and powerful tool in my life. And kids are, kids are finding that out themselves. They're using these tools in, in powerful and exciting ways. Now, what's happened is that with this astounding growth of Android, uh, Apple still has a very high uh, penetration in the tablet world because they had that market to themselves for two years. But Apple has made a couple of missteps, in my view, when it comes to uh, the tablet. You know, the, the iPad, I have one. I like it a lot. Uh, but the downside of the iPad is, number one, it's pretty expensive. Number two, they spend more time telling you what you can't do than what you can. You know, you can't use Flash. You can't uh, uh, you can't download a programming language for kids. Are you familiar with a language called Scratch from MIT? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Well, Scratch was developed for the the version of Scratch was developed for the iPad, and Apple turned it down, for, forbid it, forbid it, banned it from the uh, iTunes Store. I'm thinking, excuse me, you you're turning down something that is being given away for free from the MIT Media Lab? What are you thinking? And what they're thinking is they don't want people using the iPads for the creation of software. They want it to be a consumption device because there's no there's no margin for them. <clears throat> if uh, I mean, there's a reason that Apple's got over seventy billion dollars in cash. They have figured out how to monetize uh, their offering in beautiful ways. So you know they get thirty percent of every sale in the iTunes store. And if you create an environment kids can write their own software, well, that's going to cut into that. So I can understand why Apple may choose to do that. But now we've got some really nice looking tablets from, from other places that are, 
uh, like the Samsung uh, 10.1 Galaxy, which just came out. Very nice looking device, very fast, nice performance capabilities. A little heavier than an iPad 2, but still a nice device. Uh, Lenovo just announced uh, some new ThinkPads that are, uh, honest to goodness, uh, 10-inch tablets. Um, and I'm experimenting right now with a 7-inch tablet and trying to figure out where, if any place, that fits. Uh, because to my fingers, it's a little small. I, do, I wouldn't want to create many documents on it. But it's sure a nice place for, you know, watching videos and answering emails and, you know, going to Facebook and doing stuff like that. So I think that that's, you know, there may be a, there may be a space for these seven inch tablets. But I don't think Apple's going to be number one in the tablet world, uh, 12 months from now. I think there's enough competition out there. They may, they may, they may be the largest, uh, single vendor. But they're going to be competing against lots of other vendors. And, and, you know, over 550,000 fresh copies of Android are being registered in the world every day. By the time we finish this presentation, there'll be 15,000 more. So, uh, this is, this is pretty amazing stuff in, in its own right. Um, we're seeing the rise of social networks that are tied in with this mobile uh, world very strongly. And the other, uh, and, and that ties into education in very powerful ways. We know that peer to peer learning can be an amazingly powerful tool. We know that since Vygotsky did his research back in the time of Piaget. I mean, this is not a new idea. It's just we didn't have the tools until now that really facilitate all of this. So I think that these, you know, we've got the makings of a perfect storm. And I said, couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to be saying it again uh, another week at a conference in Michigan, that in my view, there have been three truly disruptive technologies in the history of education. Only three. The first was the invention of the phonetic alphabet. That was about 5,000 years ago. <clears throat> because with the phonetic alphabet, you could express any language in one orthographic system, which which meant that you know people could could learn to read other people's languages, and stories could be captured in their languages of origin, and others could have access to it. Uh, but, the, but the phonetic alphabet was a huge, huge development. And it took a long time to impact schooling, but it did. All right. Then the next one, we have to fast forward up to only 1500s, 1501 to be exact, which was the rise of the mass-produced book. Now, the mass-produced book is an interesting concept. Actually, it goes back a little bit before that. The mass-produced book means books printed for whom there was not an existing customer. Prior, even at the time of Gutenberg, uh, when when he developed movable type, books were still created on one at a time on a subscription basis. Somebody came and said, okay, I want this particular book, and somebody would set the type and print it. But with all this minutious, and, and a couple of other people even before him, Books were printed and bound and then made available in what today we would call bookstores for people to come in and browse and buy. And that resulted in a huge growth of literacy. A lot of people think that led to the Renaissance. Um, I mean, geez, 1493, which is predates this uh, story by about seven or eight years, <clears throat> when Columbus came back from the New World, he wrote about a 25-page book, a very short book, that immediately got translated into a whole bunch of languages that described his his adventures and described what he saw. 
And copies of that ended up in the hands of people like Cabot and other great explorers. And so, in fact, while we say that Columbus discovered America, the reality probably is that the press discovered America. And, and I think that, uh, that was a, that was the second huge disruptive technology in education. Because when teachers now had access to books, they could focus on the skills they brought to the table, not just spending their time dictating notes that students would transcribe to build their own library of, of information. Huge, huge thing. Also took a long time to happen. Now we fast forward to today and we talk about one-to-one -one computing in the form of the mobile world. A lot of schools have talked about one-to-one -one computing. A lot of schools haven't talked about One-to-one computing hasn't been embraced, in my view, as much as it should be because teachers correct, not just teachers, but administrators, correctly perceive that one-to-one -one computing rocks education as it exists to its very core. If every child has access to the Internet all the time, the way that you've been teaching for the past parts of your career no longer have relevance. It doesn't mean that your expertise doesn't have relevance. It doesn't mean that your ability to coach kids and to help them make meaning out of what they've learned have relevance. That's always had relevance. But it means that the whole textbook-driven curriculum is a dead is a dead beast in this new world. And so this is a this is a reason that I think one-to-one -one computing didn't take hold. Consider, for example, uh, 2009. 2009 was the first year it was cheaper to buy because that's when netbooks became popular, right? 2009 was the first year it was cheaper to buy a netbook for a child than it was to fill that child's backpack with textbooks. And so schools that bought netbooks could actually save a significant amount of money. We're talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars in a school if they just bought every kid a computer and used open source textbooks rather than going to Pearson and all the other textbook vendors and buying these, these textbooks, which in many cases had obsolete information on the very day they were printed. So people resisted that revolution, I think, because it was a threat. Well, now schools resisted it, but the kids didn't. And the kids get the technology, it's in their pockets, it's coming to school. I'm astounded in Brazil, for example, where an iPhone costs a lot more than it does in the U.S., like twice as much as it costs in the U.S. to go into uh, a uh, well, like one of the schools we work with at the K pre-K to 8th grade school. And if I look at kids from grades 4 up in that school, a huge percentage of them have smartphones. It's not that they have phones. A huge percentage of them have smartphones. I mean, virtually all the kids have, have cell phones, but, but the smartphones are really taking form. If it hasn't already happened, the sales of smartphones will be the crossover point in the U.S., uh, within within a month, monthly sales of or monthly activations of smartphones will exceed that of traditional phones simply because I can go to Target or I can go to any retailer today and I can get a basic smartphone for free with a two-year contract. And so if I don't have to pay more for it, why, why would I? And when I do have that device, if I'm a student, I've got all kinds of cool stuff I can do. I could do a little project. I'll give you an example. I was doing a robotics workshop for some kids in um, sixth grade um, a couple of years ago. And after this girl had built her little robot using recycled materials, 
uh, she was following it around the floor with her cell phone, and she was talking. And I waited for her to finish what she was doing, and I went over to her, and I said, sweetie, I said, what were you doing? And she said, oh, she said, I was just taking a movie of my robot, and I just posted it, note that that's past tense, on YouTube. <laughs> okay? So this is this is where the kids are. To them, this is this isn't new stuff. This is stuff that this is their life. This is how they function. And I think it's marvelous. But if we don't help teachers figure out how to transform their practice, then we're in for a world of hurt. Because the technologies aren't going to stop. And and school districts that two years ago were saying over my dead body will we allow student owned technology in the classrooms are now figuring out how to do it, finding it's not that hard to take care of their firewall issues and all that kind of stuff. And a good case in point is uh, Forsyth County Schools in Georgia, outside of Atlanta. Bailey Mitchell and his team there have done a, a magnificent job of embracing and encouraging BYOT. And we're starting to see some school districts in Indiana, one state over from me, doing the same thing. And and this is, this is a revolution that's coming. Now, of course, that side of the revolution is driven purely by the technology. The part that's scary is what does it mean in the classroom and how do the teachers change what they do. So part of what David is doing these days is doing workshops for educators uh, with my team on how to teach in this world where technology is truly ubiquitous. Right, because we still need teachers. Even though the technology changes, we still need that professional Absolutely. in the classroom to oversee Absolutely. the process. Absolutely, we do. Absolutely, we do. And it, and even, you know, I think we're starting to see a huge growth in online universities, and there's a bunch of factors that play the role there, and that can work. But up and through high school, you need to have you need to have teachers because there's a socialization of the child, you know, I've had somebody, one of my grad students wrote to me about Second Life, and one of the things he liked about Second Life was that you didn't have to be there to be there. And I said, well, that's fine, but you look at that from the perspective of a kid in middle school, I don't think that that is a replacement for human interaction. Now, and I'm not just being an old fuddy-duddy when I say that. There's a lot of, of research that shows that kids need to be around their peers. And, and there's Whole, how, how you interact with other human beings is critical part to living. However, uh, that doesn't mean technology can't and won't play a huge role in, in mediating those interactions. It, it will. If you've seen the recent Pew studies, for example, uh, more kids text than use voice on their cell phones. Texting is, texting is a huge element. Some of the cell phone companies, in fact, if you if you get enough texting minutes, don't even charge you for voice calls because they know that the voice traffic is going to be a fraction of what it used to be. Um, that's just based on the demographics of the kids, understanding that audience. So we live in a blended world, and we're always going to live in a blended world. But the deeper question is, how does this new technology change or create the opportunity for teachers to, to radically transform their classroom practice. And I would argue that that is going to be a big an issue for educators to deal with as the mass-produced book was or as, to be honest, the invention of the phonetic alphabet. 
Now, you mentioned earlier one of our uh, favorite topics here on this show, and that's uh, the idea of open source uh, software. And I know that you, uh, you and your foundation do a lot in the way of open source advocacy. Uh, talk about that a little bit and what role you see that playing in our future. Well, I'm a huge fan of open source for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, one of them is that a lot of the open source titles are at least as good, if not in some cases better, than their commercial uh, counterparts. And the reason for that is that because it's open source, you've got many more eyeballs looking at it than you would have in any software development team. Uh, so uh, a perfect example is Celestia, which is this. I don't know if you've ever played with Celestia. but Absolutely. It's All right. Celestia is too big a program to have been written by any company. I don't know a single company who had the resources to build Celestia on their own. I mean, my gosh. When they discovered, uh, when, when the Kepler Space Telescope discovered 50 potential uh, habitable planet candidates uh, back, uh, I think it was March of, of uh, this year, within two weeks, models of those planets had already been posted to Celestia. I mean, this is, this is astounding. So if I wanted to go visit a planet that had just been discovered two weeks before, I could go to Celestia, uh, down, you know, download the stuff from the Celestia mother load and, and have access to it. That's amazing. Uh, uh, when you, when you look at, uh, when you look at tools like OpenOffice, which is my default word processor, I don't use any of the Microsoft products. OpenOffice actually is, is more compatible. I don't know that that's true anymore but more compatible with Microsoft uh, than some of Microsoft's own products. Uh, a good example being Doc Export, which is an ugly, awful thing. I have no idea why Microsoft <laughs> but idea in the first place. But the fact is OpenOffice has handled that far cleaner than Microsoft's own software has until recently. So um, we're, we're, seeing, we're, we're seeing this. Now, the downside of OpenOffice, is that the software is only developed in the areas that people want to develop software in. Nobody's getting paid for this necessarily, although there are some people who are. I mean, for example, there are lots of people on the open office development team who are being paid full-time by their corporations uh, to work on it because their corporations depend on open office. And so by investing in somebody who makes open office better, they are the direct beneficiaries of it. And they're happy to pick up that tab. Donco de Brazil, for example, um, supports um, at least one person I know of full time just working on open office. I met the gentleman a few years ago at Open Source Conference down there. Um, so there's there's that side to it. But the downside is you take a look at education specific stuff, and it's a little you know it's, it's a little harder. An exception to that, and this is kind of in the not exactly open source world, but close enough to it. Uh, there's an organization out at the University of Colorado with memory service called PHET, and they do a lot of one-trick ponies, little uh, science simulations that cover just about any topic you can ever imagine. And one of the things that they've made an open call for on their site is for people to port their software into other languages. And if you do that, because uh, they give you they give you the materials to do that, then that grows that grows their capabilities. This is all free software, and now they've got these PHE titles in a whole bunch of languages. Uh, language localization is very expensive for a company to do, but when you have volunteers doing it and volunteers who are furthermore going to be using the stuff, 
then you know it's going to be accurate. And as I said, it's the whole business of eyeballs. The more eyeballs looking at a software, uh, the more bugs you find and the faster the bugs get fixed. So I continue to be a huge fan of why open source did not totally take hold, given the astounding license fees, like $50,000 a year or more for some school, to maintain their Microsoft licenses. Uh, they're just stuck in, stuck in a rut. And, and there's no need for that. And, and actually it hurts other commercial software developers. And here's why. You take a look at a marvelous commercial company called Tech for Learning. They don't do any open source software, but they do software that you want to buy. I mean, it's really astoundingly cool stuff for kids. Absolutely astounding. The problem is that by the time schools have spent money on commodity software, you know, their word processing, spreadsheet, database, all that kind of stuff, they typically don't have enough, especially in these uh, financial times, to, to buy some of these ancillary products for which there is no open source equipment. Um, and, and that, that I think does a disservice to, to education. So again, I think a blended approach that says let's use open source for the stuff that, that can be uh, done best that way and then let's use commercial software for the stuff that's best that way. I think that's the way to go. Now I'm guessing that your next question is, but what about the cloud? Okay. And the reason is because uh, a lot of people today are talking about Google Apps. And I've used Google Apps and for what I'm using it for, I think it's fine. I haven't had problems with it. But I also have broadband. I've got some serious bandwidth at my fingertips. Most schools do not yet do not yet have enough bandwidth to have every kid sitting there in Google Apps at the same time. That's you know, that could be a trade. Especially if at the same time they're also connected to Discovery and they're streaming videos and they're doing other things online. Uh, after a while it's like sucking peanut butter at the soda stream. And you start pulling the, pulling the average speed of the network down, it becomes frustrating. So we're going to be in a position for the next few years that it's going to be a transitional time. I'm sure the bandwidth is going to increase in schools, and it's going to increase dynamically, um, dramatically rather. And when it does, that's going to be a huge win for for everyone. And we'll see the cloud applications really take off. I don't know if you're familiar. Are you familiar with Google Music? Absolutely. Okay, I took my entire music library and and put it up there. So now, you know, I pull out my phone, I pull out anything I want, want to listen to some songs, I got it. And here's an interesting consequence of that. Ford Motor Company just announced this week that they are no longer going to be putting CD players in cars. They're, they're rolling this decision out in Europe first and then it'll be in the U.S. by next year. And the reason is because if you've got tools like Google Music, what do you want a CD player for? Exactly. You got, entire, you got your entire music library. I mean it took it took two it took two days of you know pretty high speed data transfer to get my library up there. But now that it's up, it's really cool. You must and, have a lot more bandwidth than I do because it took over a week for me to get mine up there. <laughs> yeah, well I to be honest, I I did it from my I did it from my home in Brazil and I've got better bandwidth there than I do here in the house in the US. So uh yeah, it, but but the point is that well, of course you also could have a much larger collection than I do. But the point is that all this stuff is working really well and and so cloud computing I think is going to have a robust future. But in schools it's going to take time for that to happen. 
Well, uh, uh, Dr. Thornburg, I'm kind of interested or curious about, uh, you know, you say that uh, the schools really have to get there, but uh, we're, we're a very small rural school and we've been able to basically provide exactly what you've said. Uh, we're poor. We're out in the middle of nowhere, and yet we've been able to go out and get this bandwidth and, and present all the tools to the, the classroom, the teachers, the students that are necessary. So do you think it's a matter of those tools becoming available or them just being prioritized correctly? Well, it's always a matter of priorities, right? It's a matter of priorities. And again, uh, I think, quite frankly, uh, it's going to happen in the kids' pockets before it happens in the institutions, and that's going to fly right in the face of SEPA and everything else. Because if I've got 4G on a handheld device, I've got access to the internet while I'm on the bus between school and home. I've got access at home, and I've got access at school unless you use that magical paint that blocks the signals. And and so now I'm going to have like 56 megabits per second on a handheld device just for me, and that's pretty cool. I can do I can do a lot with that. I can definitely. I can stream stuff. I can do all kinds of stuff with it. So I wonder if an end run isn't going to happen on bandwidth the way that it has happened on the devices themselves. That's an open question at this point. Uh, what approach are you taking to to provide the bandwidth? Uh, well, we uh, we rolled out uh, Google Apps uh, last year, and as you said, it, our bandwidth took a, a a hit in a big way. Uh, we have a one to one environment, and uh, uh, we we went out and and took what. The needed to happen, and uh, thanks to uh, some E-rate uh, discounts, we were able to increase our bandwidth tenfold. Uh, and that Wonderful. Should, that should last us a while, but it's not a permanent yeah. fix because we're going to need more, uh, you know, in in the next four or five years, I'm sure. And I think E-rate needs to be modified to cover uh, access from home as well. Uh, I think there's some changes that are going to have to come for that bill for it to keep up with with today's reality. And I'm sure it will because the you know the the US government government has a good track record for being responsive and timely in its actions. <laughs> oh, just yes, yeah, just absolutely. No no question. Yep. And and as long as, as long as none of us are left behind <laughs> That's right. As long as no one is left behind, right. uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time. We're running a little late, and uh, I we uh, I want to uh, uh, go ahead and, and let you get on with your day. But uh, uh, so I'll ask you what I always ask all of our guests: if you had just one thought, one final thing that you wanted to make sure, if nobody heard anything else, they heard this. What would that be? Teachers always have the best interests of their students in their hearts. And, what, and, and so what we need to do is to support teachers in understanding that it's a new world. And once they truly grasp and understand that, some magical stuff is going to happen. Thank you very much for your time, for your expertise, and for your decades of service to, uh, to the world at large, really. Thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And that was Dr. David Thornburg. I have to admit, I have a bit of a man crush on him and have for a while. Uh, he's, he's one of the smartest people ever, I think, uh, right. and uh, has a good heart and uh, uh, actively works to uh, make the world a better place. How many of you listening to this can say that, uh, that you actively work to make the world a better place? Well, if you're, uh, if you're an educator... That's true. <laughs> I guess, Good you point. know, and, and uh, I, I like to think that in doing our jobs, that's one thing that excites me about, you know, not just being an IT guy, but being an IT guy in education is that somehow, you know, I'm not 
fueling the mega corporation, uh, right. you know, that I'm actually doing my job in such a way that it's going to help change and shape the future. So, uh, but wow. I mean, yeah, you listen to a guy like that. You're just like, uh, you could sit there and listen to him all day long. Right. His final point there, uh, point there was that, uh, teachers always have the best intentions. I think that's true of everybody in education. That's why we do this. That's why we work long hours for lower pay than we sh- could anywhere else. Right. Uh, I've said many times I could go anywhere and make money. I don't want to make money. I want to make a difference. And I think everybody in education feels that way. And, um, and it's good to, uh, to, uh, to remember that, particularly as as you get overwhelmed and, and start complaining, remember that you uh, you started this to make a difference. Yeah, and it's nice to know that there's guys like Dr. Thornburg out there, really on the uh, the leading tip of the spear, uh, kind of pushing things forward. And uh, uh, most people, I think, would appreciate that. And there are some that wish things would never change and uh, wish guys like him and us would go away. <laughs> <laughs> the boat rockers out there, right? So at this point, I guess we'll just move on to our uh, tips of the week, and uh, I'll start with my uh, tech tip of the week. And this one is uh, maybe um, the only um, good Russian site on the web. Uh, really? <laughs> That's, you found one? <laughs> uh, I did. I found one. This is called Driver Pack Solution, and we've done things like this before with uh, with drivers or whatever. This is, um, if not unique, certainly unusual in that it's not some sort of thing that, that depends on downloading drivers or whatever. It is a DVD, and it takes a full DVD, and it's like... Every driver this guy has ever heard of crammed on a DVD. You download it, wow. you, you burn it to a disc, um, and then when you boot up your Windows system and it works on all modern versions of Windows from XP all the way up through a 7, 32-bit, and 64-bit, you put this disc in, you run it, and it goes through, and the first thing it does is finds all uh, the drivers that it can find. And most of the time, according to uh, the documentation, I haven't actually tried it, but most of the time it's going to find it. Like 99-plus percent of the time it's going to have it. Then the very next thing it does, once it gets your network driver up, is it goes out onto the network and updates itself to make sure you got the latest drivers for everything. And then you might be left with some odd driver that doesn't work. But for the most part, uh, it's going to work according to uh, the creator. So uh, they're up to version uh, 11. Well, it's probably actually 2011, but they call it Driver Pack Solution 11. Um, but check it out. It um, It's really, um, if it does everything it says it does, and I'm not uh, warranting it uh, saying that it, that it actually does because I haven't tried it. I, I've just read about it. It was... Uh, pointed out to me somewhere along the line but if it really does everything it says it does this is something that every technician needs to have in their toolkit yes yes could be because when you find yourself in that situation and you're like you, you know you've done whatever you've done to a machine and you get it going and then you look and you're like you're missing some critical drivers particularly network drivers because then you can't go out and find the other stuff you need right um yeah it's it's a major pain so any tool that helps you out there is uh, a blessing yeah and it uh it uh, is even server versions of the os uh, are on there so uh it's a very comprehensive tool all right john what is our uh, teacher tip of the week the teacher tip of the week is pretty cool this week uh it comes from the library of congress and it's a site that they run and uh let me see they call it because the url that i would give you would be uh, would not make any sense at all uh but it's called everyday mysteries and it's fun science facts from the library of congress uh so of course we'll have the the link to this on our uh on our webpage and in the show notes so you can certainly go there and check it out but uh what you what it basically is is you just get 
answers to various questions in 12 different categories. And these categories are all really educationally based. So agriculture, astronomy, chemistry, biology, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you get questions like, uh, are black-eyed peas actually peas? Or uh, why do turkeys have dark and white meat? Uh, or how does sunscreen work? So uh, it, obviously, I don't, you know, I, I look at questions like these and I think that they're geared towards like sixth grade children. But it's funny how when you end up on a site like this, you can't help but keep clicking around. Right? Are black eyed peas really peas, Sean? I don't know the answer. Uh, to no, that. actually, they're uh, they're beans, but I guess beans and peas are all legumes. Legumes, right? Okay. Uh, so, uh, and it goes into all that detail. So <laughs> it doesn't just tell you yes or no answers. I mean, it goes into details of why. So there's a really uh, it, it's neat because there's a lot of uh, learning opportunities in there. There's it, it goes much deeper than just a, a surface uh, answer. It, it goes into the why that is the answer so uh great uh great site check it out and uh you're going to have to get it from our show notes because the uh the link is just uh nasty or just go to the library of congress and do a search for it i'm sure i'm sure or or do what we would do right just google google search everyday mysteries in the library of congress and i'm sure you're going to find it but really the place you want to go is elementop.com yeah you know that's what i was trying to do right drive traffic to our site you know i'm the i'm the (laughs) ultimate marketer so (laughs) and the reason you'd want to go there is uh, not just for to find our tips of the week but to find our forums where uh, all sorts of interesting communications go on there uh you can call us from there if you want to leave us a voicemail uh, at uh, the uh, uh, Tech. Uh, whoa, I just totally lost my train of thought. Our what's that thing? That company Twitter it starts with a G. It's a big co- Google. Google at our Google, Google Voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could leave us a message at our Google Voice number, which is five three zero frugal two, or right there on the website. See, that's where I was trying to get to. There you go. There right you there go. on the website, there's the call widget uh, where you can call and uh, leave us a message. And we will uh, play it on the air. And so uh, I guess that uh, wraps it up there. Oh, I, I, I forgot to mention the uh, uh, Google, uh, uh, the Twitter and the Facebook. You know, the Twitter and the Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where Those you can so contact us there. Twitter.com slash Element OP, and there you'll find the Taiwan Tech um, list that will let you follow the two of us, or Facebook.com slash Element OP, uh, where we will uh, hopefully be posting inf- interesting stuff from time to time. Um, oh, I do uh, I do want to plug something, though. We finally got the first episode of our new show, The Hot Route, recorded. So and and maybe by the time this goes out, even released. It, it actually should, uh, since we're actually going to be doing a quicker cycle so if you haven't already checked it out by now i mean there might be two episodes up so uh go check it out the the hot route uh that is if you're in any way interested in football (laughs) yeah we've got uh two guys uh we've talked about this a little bit before but not a lot uh two two of the uh, the three hosts are sean's brothers uh yes yes (laughs) sean has 47 brothers is that right uh eight Eight. but yeah close Yeah, so uh, so two of them are Sean's brothers, uh, Travis and uh, Zach, and then Aaron is the third host. Did I get it right? Uh, Nate. Nate. Nate is his name. But it's it's really, they've got a great dynamic going on. Uh, Nate and, and Travis are clearly football buffs. I mean, these guys just can go into all kinds of detail as to why 
this player should have been traded and shouldn't have. I mean, they go on and on and on. And they would probably be boring to listen to, quite honestly, if it wasn't for Zach. Zach's the goofball in the middle, and uh, it actually works out pretty well. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I need something to listen to because when we do fantasy football, uh, if, if I don't have some sort of a resource, I'm going to be totally lost. As you usually are when we yeah, do fantasy hey, football. You know, I, I can usually come through with a pretty solid second or third. <laughs> Sean, please put us out of misery. Uh, well, it was another outstandingly great show. Okay, I hope so. <laughs> and with that having been said, this is Mark signing off. And Sean signing off. <laughs>